everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I was recently uh, deadheading some lilacs out in my yard. Now, by that, I don't mean that I was just, you know, blasting Uncle John's band at them until they mellowed out. I mean, obviously, I was doing that, but I wasn't just doing that. I was also cutting the dead flowers off of the plant so that it would focus its energy on new growth instead of trying to regrow flowers that had already passed. And it struck me that there's probably a metaphor in that that I think a lot of us would benefit from. Like, maybe if we let go of our nostalgia for past glories, then we can focus on what's ahead of us and instead create new memories. But then I realized that's stupid. That metaphor doesn't really work. Because what I'm doing in cutting off the dead flowers is trying to make it so that next year, the same kind of flowers grow on there, only bigger and more robust. So, I mean, it's not like if I forget about the time that when I was seven years old, I went to the bank and met Celtics Hall of Famer Robert Parrish, then the next time I go to the bank, I'm going to meet a bigger Robert Parrish. I mean, it's a beautiful dream, and of course, every time I go to the bank, I do look around to see if there's a bigger Robert Parrish there, but come on, Robert Parrish was like seven feet tall. He's probably the biggest Robert Parrish, and after that point, I think you're going to get some pretty significantly diminishing returns on your Robert Parrishes. So, I guess my point is, all metaphors are inherently flawed, lilacs are pretty, and when I was seven years old, I went to the bank and met Robert Parrish. I think the bank was giving away frisbees that day, too. But that's a tale for another time. Actually, that's pretty much the whole tale. I got a free frisbee. Now, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. New Titans, number 61, December 1989. A Lonely Place of Dying, Chapter 4. Going Home. Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Drawn by George Perez and Tom Grummet. Inked by Bob McLeod. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Jonathan Peterson and Mike Carlin. Titan Roll Call. Nightwing. Cyborg. Starfire. Troya. Jericho. Raven. Speedy, Tim Drake, who technically isn't a Titan, but he does eventually join a later version of the Teen Titans, and Batman, who isn't a Titan at all, but at one point a guy who is a Titan becomes Batman for a while, so maybe that counts? Previously in the New Titans. Ever since the death of his young protege, Jason Todd, a.k.a. Robin Two. Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, has been acting like an out-of-control asshole. Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, f.k.a. Robin, became concerned about his former mentor's behavior. 
He asked his pal Speedy, a.k.a. Roy Harper, to fill in for him with the Titans, and took a leave of absence from the gang so that he could head to Gotham and keep an eye on Bruce. Then he got distracted and bought a circus instead. Oops. While Dick was solving the inevitable murder that was a traditional part of any trip to the circus, he was approached by a teenage boy named Tim Drake, who told him to get back to Gotham because Batman needed his help. Dick was taken aback that Tim knew his secret identity, but was impressed by the tenacious teen's determination, and agreed to take him to Bruce's house so that they could sort things out. Previously in Batman... Batman has been spiraling out of control lately and taking a lot of unnecessary risks. While patching him up after a recent fracas, Bruce's long-suffering butler-slash-father figure, Alfred Pennyworth, gave the billionaire-do-well bat enthusiast a lecture about how badly he was fucking up. But Bruce shrugged it off and once again immersed himself in crime-fighting. The bifurcated bad guy known as Two-Face, a.k.a. Harvey Dent, was behind a crime wave that had been plaguing Gotham, and Bruce was determined to put a stop to it. Batman and Two-Face each set up unnecessarily elaborate traps in hopes of ensnaring one another, but each abandoned their respective scheme in favor of springing their opponent's trap. While Bruce and Harvey were off engaging in this death trap of the Magi situation, Dick and Tim arrived at Wayne Manor. Tim explained to Dick and Alfred how he had figured out Batman's secret identity. As a small child, Tim's parents had taken him to the circus, and he had witnessed the murder of Dick's parents, the Flying Graysons. Prior to the murder, Tim had been impressed by young Dick's performance as an acrobat. A few months later, when Batman started to be accompanied by a teenage sidekick named Robin, Tim recognized the young adventurer's movements as being those of the acrobat he had witnessed on that fateful night. It probably helped that Dick's trapeze attire was almost identical to his Robin costume. Once he knew Robin's identity, Tim figured out that Batman was probably the billionaire who adopted Dick right before he debuted as Robin. From that point forward, Tim became a huge fan of Batman and Robin, following all of their exploits. He fanatically kept all of the newspaper clippings of their crime fighting, as well as articles from the society and financial pages about Bruce Wayne's exploits. He noticed that when Dick moved out and became Nightwing, soon thereafter Bruce Wayne adopted Jason Todd, and a new Robin appeared. He also noticed that when Jason died, Robin disappeared, and Batman started fucking up and taking more and more unnecessary risks. That's why he tracked Dick down at the circus. Tim figured that since Batman seemed better adjusted when Dick was Robin, if Dick went back to being Robin, Batman would go back to being better adjusted. Alfred and Dick were impressed by Tim's deductive abilities and somewhat in awe of his use of basic logic and facial recognition. They shared his concern about Bruce's fragile state of mind but did not share his conclusion. Dick took Tim down to the Batcave and calmly told him that his robining days were behind him. The acrobatic adventurer changed into his Nightwing duds and rode off on his motorcycle to try to lend the driven Dark Knight some assistance, but as a peer, not a subordinate. Tim voiced the opinion that Batman needed Robin, not Nightwing, and Alfred implied that perhaps the reason Dick brought him to the Batcave was because Robin was a role that Tim might fill. Gadzooks! What role will our titular Titans play in this ongoing Bat saga? How will Two-Face respond to the failure of his unnecessarily complicated Batman trap? And does Dick's new occupation as a circus magnate affect this storyline in any way? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so 
They take a phone message for Dick. By building an even more unnecessarily complicated trap. And no. No, it doesn't. So, remember how I just said that previously in Batman, Dick calmly told Tim that he wasn't going back to being Robin and then drove off on his motorcycle? Well, I guess he must have forgotten his wallet or something and had to go back. Because at the start of this issue, Dick is back in the Batcave, angrily yelling at Tim for suggesting that he go back to being Robin. Then he drives off on his motorcycle. Fair enough. Over at the Titan Tower, Raven is hanging out and brooding when a mysterious stranger calls and asks to speak to Nightwing. The guy on the phone sounds like he's a real piece of work, so Raven tries to keep him on the line long enough to trace the call. The guy catches on to her intention pretty quickly and is like, Nothing doing. I think I'll just leave a message. The stranger does something that makes an ear-splitting squeal and then hangs up. When the call started, Raven had linked up with the rest of the Titans so that they could listen in over their walkie-talkies or whatever. Cyborg, who has taken over as team leader in Dick's absence, is like, Nice job, Raven. I think I can trace that call with my nonsense robot powers. Did your nonsense magic powers give you any insights about this guy? Raven is like, Only that he is a very dangerous asshole who is kind of losing his shit. Speedy is like, I'll plug the recording of that squealy noise into my computer and see if I can figure out what it is. Vic is like, sure, whatever. I mean, it's 1989, so I'm pretty sure the only person your Apple IIe can help us track down is Carmen Sandiego, but knock yourself out. Cyborg has Donna and Starfire join him as he heads out to the source of the call. Seems like kind of a lot of firepower to bring on what amounts to investigating a prank phone call but nobody's been able to get in touch with Dick for a while, and he hasn't been responding to his pager, so the Titans are a little on edge. The source of the phone call turns out to be a telephone pole out in the middle of nowhere. Apparently, the prank caller climbed the pole, spliced directly into the telephone wire, and then drove off. Vic is like, well, shit. Guess there's no way to track him down. Maybe Speedy was able to do something useful. When everyone's finished laughing at the very funny joke Vic has just made, they head back to their T-shaped skyscraper. When they arrive, Speedy is like, Hey, I know you thought I was wasting my time, but it turns out that squeal noise is a coded message being sent through a modem. Vic is like, Wow, I never thought I'd say this, but great work, Speedy. Uh, what was the message? Speedy's like, Oh, I have no idea. It sounded like this, though. So, I don't know, maybe it was a dolphin? Vic is like, thanks, Roy. Super helpful. Speedy is like, and get this, a waiter says that he saw Carmen Sandiego purchasing some bauxite using drachma. So, I figure she's probably in, um, Indiana? Roy's inane ramblings give Jericho an idea. The newly mutton-chopless mutant starts signing Dick's name, then points at Raven and signs her name. Raven is like, Oh, I get it. You want to listen to the new Dick Raven album. Well, okay, but after that, we're going to figure out what to do about that message. Meanwhile, Dick is hanging out on a rooftop in Gotham with Commissioner Gordon. 
They've been shining the bat signal into the sky for a while now, but with no results. Dick is like, well, I guess we might as well turn that thing off. I don't think he's coming. Commissioner Gordon is like, yeah, it was worth a try, but he's been ignoring it more and more lately. He's been such a moody asshole ever since Robin disappeared. I don't suppose you know a good grief counselor, do you? Dick is like, no. No, I definitely do not know a good grief counselor. Just then, Raven teleports herself onto the rooftop and is like, Hey, Dick, we need to talk. We've been trying to track you down for the past few issues now, but then I remembered that I could have used my mystical nonsense powers to find you at any time. Silly me. Anyway, some weirdo called and left you an encoded message. It's all here on this mini-disc. Jericho thinks it has something to do with Batman. Dick plugs the disc into his tiny computer that he keeps on his bracelet, and it's like, wait, this is a secret code that only Batman and me know. How did Jericho recognize it? Raven is like, Oh, he said that he accidentally read your mind a little bit one of the times he was possessing you, and he kind of, sort of, learned all of your secrets. He told me to tell you that he said, Whoops. Dick is like, Tell him not to worry about it. Raven is like, Seriously? Because that seems like a pretty significant breach of trust. But whatever you say, do you want us titans to help you out with this? Dick is like, no, this is something I have to do by myself. Raven is like, So convincing Batman that he needs to learn how to accept help from others and can't do everything by himself is something that you need to do all by yourself. That doesn't seem a little bit... You know what, never mind. Raven teleports away. Commissioner Gordon is like, Never mind, huh? I'm gonna quote her on that. Get it, Nightwing? Because her name's Raven, and never mind sounds kind of like nevermore. So, Nightwing? Commissioner Gordon looks around, but Dick is snuck off mid-conversation. After doing his version of Batman's patented Irish goodbye, Dick holes up in a nearby alley. He calls Wayne Manor to see if Bruce has come home yet. Alfred answers and is like, no, he's probably either obsessing about Two-Face or making unnecessarily elaborate prank calls. I knew purchasing him that Jerky Boy's cassette was a mistake. After he hangs up, Dick checks out the coded files that Batman sent him. It turns out to be all the information about Two-Face's crimes that Batman has compiled over the past indeterminate amount of comic book time. Dick scans all of the evidence, and then hops on his motorcycle, doing some nonsense-free association about the number two, and for some reason the number four. And within a few seconds, he inexplicably reaches the conclusion that Two-Face is holed up at a house at the intersection of 4th Avenue and 4th Street. Seriously? So, Two-Face is now just doing numbers that are multiples of two? That's like half the numbers. That's barely even a theme anymore. It's like if Catwoman started doing giraffe and chipmunk-based crimes, too. Because, hey, they're all mammals, right? Boo! When Nightwing pulls up to the house on 4th Street, he finds that Batman is there waiting for him. Batman is like, You figured out my complicated bullshit clues faster than I expected. Nightwing is like, 
Yeah, well, I'm pretty good at this shit. You know this is a trap, right? Batman is like, of course. And I taught you the best way to deal with traps is to walk into them heedlessly. So that's what I'm gonna do. Nightwing is like, do you need any help? Batman is like, yeah, uh, no. No, I definitely don't need any help, ever, with anything. But if you wanted to stick around and help, I guess that would be okay. You know, if you wanted to. Dick kind of smirks and is like, yeah, sure, sounds fun. So do you think we should go in there together and watch each other's backs? Batman is like, what? No way. Didn't I teach you anything? Traps need to be walked into heedlessly. If we go in together, that's way too heedful. No, I'm going to Kool-Aid man my way through that big window, and you're going to go round back and hang out by the rear entrance and make sure that nobody leaves. Dick is like, okay, but what if instead I... Batman cuts him off and is like, no, do what I say. If you don't follow my orders, no questions asked, then you're grounded. And no desserts for a week. Dick is like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm a grown-up. I own a circus. But Bruce is already Kool-Aid manning his way through the window. Dick is like, fine. He goes around the house to guard the back door. Only when he gets there, he finds out that there isn't a back door. So instead, he sneaks in through a tiny window that leads to the basement. Meanwhile, Batman finds himself standing in a bedroom where all of the furniture has been glued to the ceiling. Batman is understandably confused, as am I. So, in addition to being obsessed with the numbers 2 and apparently 4, is Harvey Dent also obsessed with Lionel Richie's music video for Dancing on the Ceiling? I mean, if so, I get it. It had cameos from Cheech and Rodney Dangerfield. Talk about star power. Hey, what's happening here? Come on up. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that upside down cake. Man, that shit is gold. Batman doesn't figure Two-Face for a Lionel Richie fan, though. The Commodores maybe, but not a solo work. He radios Dick to see what's happening around back. Dick is like, I snuck into the basement, but there's just a bunch of upside-down boxes. There doesn't even seem to be a staircase leading to the rest of the house. Maybe we should just leave. Batman is like, no, that's heedful talk. I trained you for this. What did I always tell you to do in a situation like this? Dick is like, stand around motionless, deep in thought, paying little to no attention to our surroundings until we have an epiphany. Batman is like, exactly. Dick is like, fine, but I'm still taking some precautions. He pushes a couple of buttons on his TI-80 of a wrist-mounted computer. Ooh, maybe the fact that everything's upside down inspired him to type in the numbers 58008. <laughs> nice. Suddenly, Batman is like, Oh shit, wait, if the house is upside down, that that makes the basement the second floor. And since Harvey is obsessed with the number two, and sometimes four, then that means that's where he's going to be. Just as Batman has this epiphany, a hidden panel slides open in a wall behind Dick in the basement. Two-Face stands in a protected alcove and is like, Took you long enough. The bifurcated batty flips a coin, then detonates an explosive device, leveling the house. Batman and Nightwing are knocked unconscious, their bodies trapped under a huge pile of rubble, 
Two-Face walks over to where Dick is lying, glances at his rest computer, and is like, Five, eight, zero, zero. Oh, I get it. Boobs. <laughs> nice. Meanwhile, back at the Batcave, Alfred notices that Dick has turned on a tracking device that shares his location with the Bat computer. Tim is like, They're in trouble, aren't they? Somebody's gotta do something. Alfred is like, Yes, somebody. Indeed. He looks significantly at Jason's old Robin costume, then at Tim, then back at the costume. Is he trying to get Tim to do laundry for him? To be concluded. And joining me once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, I like your shirt. Why, thank you. I also like your shirt. Aw, Cory, for those of you listening at home, which I started to say was everybody, but I don't know where you're listening. The thing is, you're listening not here with us. Mm -hmm. And thus, do not see that Cory is wearing a lovely, I would say, uh, turquoise plaid shirt. Yeah. It's a flannel. Blue. It's very nice. Thank you. And Hub's wearing a classic Portland Trailblazers t-shirt. Yes, with the pinwheel logo. Just a plain black t-shirt with a pinwheel logo. Good stuff. How's your weekend been going? Oh, it's been busy but pleasant. Glad to hear it. You? I just got back from being in a cabin up in the woods. We have some friends who have a cabin up by Mount Hood, and they invited me and Lisa up there. And as we were leaving, I was like, oh, it's Friday the 13th, and we're going to a cabin in the woods. Oh, what could go wrong? Exactly, especially with me being a notoriously promiscuous teen who Mm. enjoys casual drug use. Mm -hmm. But overall, it was fine. Nobody got murdered, to the best of my knowledge. Awesome. The only downside was at some point a jigsaw puzzle did come out. Is that a Friday the 13th thing? No, it's a me thing. I fucking hate jigsaw puzzles. Oh, I was like, wait, did I? Yeah, it's not not bad in a, like, calamitous murderer context. It's just bad in a... I get obsessed with them, and I don't enjoy working on them, but I have to work on them if they are around. Mm. It's like throwing a pile of rice in front of, like, a Chinese vampire. I just have to stop and do it. Wow. Did you know that about Chinese vampires? No. If you throw rice or a countable object in front of them, then they have to stop chasing you and count all of the grains of rice. I did not know that. Yeah, it's a way to trip them up. I have heard rumors that that is how the Count from Sesame Street, why he is obsessed with counting, but I think that's probably an explanation that got, like, retconned in. Mm. Good to know. Yeah. I sometimes forget that the Count is a vampire. Really? Yeah. But he's so vampy. Yeah, I know, but, like, it's tough to imagine him draining somebody's blood. Yeah, that's true. Anyway... You want to talk about a comic book? Sure, why not? Corey, what did you think of this comic book? So, beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful comic book. Like, the art is great. It is. It is drawn by George Perez, and it was really nice. I got excited looking at the cover of it. The cover is fucking gorgeous. And yes, all of the art inside is really, really well done. 
seeing Batman and Nightwing team up together, which is something we don't get to see very often in a Teen Titans book, was really exciting. The story itself was fine. For me, it has kind of hit the traditional Marv Wolfman lull in a continuing story arc where things aren't really progressing as much as I would like them to. The Titans' appearance in the book seemed like a make-work project for them. (laughs) Essentially, their whole role in the, like, four or five pages they show up in, in their own book, is for them to take a message for Nightwing. It's a needlessly complicated message that they have to take, but it's still just them taking a message and then being like, hey, Dick, here's a message. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was an okay story. It was beautiful. I enjoyed looking at it. I think probably a little bit more than I enjoyed reading it. Yeah, I'm I'm of a similar mind. One thing about it and the past few issues also that I've appreciated is I realize I've spent a lot of time, I don't know, not liking Dick Grayson for all of his jerkiness. Uh-huh. But I feel like you can really get it. Like I always, like Batman, okay, not the not the world's greatest dad. Mm-hmm. It's pretty well established, but these last few have really brought that home. And it's interesting. I think you tend to get that more in the Teen Titans title than you do in the Batman title, even when it is the same writer and part of the same story arc, allegedly. The story arc hasn't seemed particularly cohesive between the two books, I gotta say. But in general, the new Titans book has always portrayed a much less sympathetic Batman than the Batman title has. And I kind of appreciate that. I think it makes sense coming from the son's perspective, and having that consistency with that's how the book portrays him. What's your history with the character Batman? Were you ever into Batman comic books? Were you ever into Batman as a character? So not so much the comic books, you know, the the movies, of course, but also when I was a kid, I had a cousin who was, if you're listening, Jason, a big fan of the original TV show. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a lot of time as kids watching that. So I have this like kind of happy, like goofy Batman memories. Gotcha. That was one of my early exposures to the character, too. I loved the Adam West Batman TV show. And as a kid, I certainly didn't get that it was camp or supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. I was just like, this is exciting. Right. Yeah. And I appreciated that. I actually saw a picture recently of you and Jason and your other cousin, Chris, and you were all wearing Batman t-shirts. And I think it was probably the same year that this comic came out, because this is 1989, Mm. and that's the year that the Tim Burton movie came out, which was just fucking huge, and Batman was everywhere. Yes. So that's kind of my earliest memories, and I I do remember the... Was it the Dark Knight? Was the Frank Miller stuff? Yeah. That when that came out to reading that as a kid and just being like, ooh, this is exciting. <laughs> it's so creepy, you know? Absolutely. And I have some quibbles, certainly, with the Batman Returns story and with a lot of Frank Miller's work. But with the, like, big, famous Batman stories that are the classic Batman stories, in general, even if they're ones that I don't like as much, I get why they're the big ones. I've talked about this in some of the recent shows that have had guests, but Batman was never really my comic book character even though I liked Batman and I liked comic books, never really put them together that much. Mm -hmm. I think it was kind of just like, you kind of didn't need the comics for Batman. If you want to get a Batman fix, there are so many places to get it. And there are so many other characters where the only place you can find them is comics. Mm -hmm. Like, he was just such a big part of the cultural landscape 
especially when we were growing up, there were only like four or five superheroes that most people could name. And Batman was definitely one of them. You had Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, and maybe the Hulk. What about Aquaman? I loved Aquaman. He was my super friend guy. I thought he looked so cool with his uh, orange and green getup. It's a good outfit. You're preaching to the choir here. I was a huge Aquaman booster. He was my favorite on Super Friends. But I think part of that is in reaction to Batman being so much the guy on that show. Mm. Like, I think Aquaman was my favorite Super Friend for a lot of the same reasons that, like, I don't know, Winston Zedmore was my favorite Ghostbuster and, like, (laughs) Ringo was my favorite Beatle. It's partly because I did like them, but if I'm honest, it's partly because I was like, well, this isn't anybody else's favorite, you know? And so I never really pursued the Batman comic books, but sometimes they're pretty fun. Do you think that your feelings about the concentration of wealth among a small percentage of the population color your appreciation of his superpower being that he's rich? Gosh, I'd really like to say that it does, but I don't think it does. So when you were a little kid, you weren't like, <laughs> I don't like the man. And he kind of represents the man in a way. <laughs> I mean, kind of, but I, it was certainly less formulated than that. I think my aversion to the super concentration of wealth was something I was less aware of then. Okay. That being said, Batman is a real fucking dick in this comic book. Oh yeah, he sure is. I gotta say, I kind of wish he was a little bit more of a dick, though. Like, the first issue of this story arc set up what seemed like it was going to be a really, really interesting story to me. It seemed like one that was, in some ways, reminiscent of Frank Miller's run on, like, Daredevil Born Again, where you see a superhero who's starting to lose it, and you see them descend into madness and hit rock bottom. And that was kind of what we got the promise of. It put the pieces in place for that, and then he's going to get redemption. But even in that first issue, you see Batman start to feel like he's losing it. Everybody around him says he's losing it. Alfred gives him a little lecture and says, hey, you're fucking losing it. And you see him say like, okay, I got to do better. And then the second issue of the arc, Batman basically wasn't in. And then the third issue of the arc, you see the, the same repetition of that, starting to lose it oh, but I better rein it in. I think I need help. I'm going to get better. And then you see that again in this issue. And I wish it would really just let him plunge all the way down and then get back up instead of doing what I've come to think of as the traditional Wolfman thing in a continuing story arc of half a turn in one direction, quarter turn back, half a turn, quarter turn back, half a turn, quarter turn back. And it's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. I don't know, though, the fact that uh, Commissioner Gordon put up the bat signal and he didn't show up Mm -hmm. and the fact that he was so reckless in his approach to that building. Right. Those are the two things we get that say, whoa, man, he is losing it. He's not showing up for work and he's not listening to Nightwing advise him of uh, what would have been his own advice. That is a good point. And you see him go through a very complicated rigmarole to leave a phone message for somebody who was staying at his house. You know, I'm more mad at Batman than anybody in this <laughs> issue because, like, okay, the complicated shit is Two-Face being Two-Face. Uh-huh. But for me, Batman, like, basically 
doubling down on that and making Robin do this guessing game to figure out how to show up to then be asked circuitously to help him. Yeah. Makes Batman my wildebeest in this issue. Yeah. Needlessly complicated for no reason stuff. He is doing that and he has been doing that this whole arc, like unnecessarily meeting Two-Face on his own terms. Instead of just going to the crime that he knows that Two-Face is going to commit, he goes through the trouble to stage a incredibly elaborate ruse that involves the number two. Like, he could have just caught Two-Face there. We really need him to stop doing the Occam's rubber mallet and trying to <laughs> hammer those hairs back into his head with it. And just, like... Do the thing where, like, oh, that ninja is doing a hundred different sword moves. He's doing a complicated kata at me. Get out the gun and fucking shoot the ninja. Mm-hmm. Batman, get out the gun and fucking shoot the ninja. Otherwise, it's a vicious cycle where Batman is feeding into Two-Face doing shit like making an upside-down house for no goddamn reason. It's just such a waste of resources. I mean, I don't... On both of their parts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not normally on the side of the bad guys in this thing, but there's plenty of good crimes he could have been out committing. He was too busy gluing furniture to a ceiling. <laughs> exactly. You know? It's just inefficient. It's very frustrating. It is. In terms of story arcs repeating themselves, we also do get in this issue almost the Evil Dead 2 approach, where the beginning of this book is a retelling with some alterations of the end of the last book. Like, if you watch Evil Dead 2, the first third of the movie is a remake of Evil Dead 1 while making a few changes. In this, the first few pages are a retelling of the end of the last issue but making a few little changes, which I understand it is a crossover between two different titles. So if you're just reading New Titans, you maybe didn't read The Last Batman, but they are both written by the same author. So it is weird that the last issue ended with Dick relatively calmly leaving the Batcave and being like, yeah, no, I'm not going to dress up as Robin, but good on you, kid, for trying to do that. Maybe you'll figure something out. And it being very strongly implied by Alfred, oh, I think Dick is trying to tell you that you should be Robin. Then in this issue, you get the same scene, but it is Tim Drake telling Dick he needs to be Robin again, and Dick freaking the fuck out and yelling at him, and then storming out of the cave and being like, nobody should have to be Robin ever. And then the ending, though, I think very strongly foreshadows that tim drake is in fact gonna have to don the short pants and uh go Mm -hmm. go rescue his heroes from the pile of rubble they're buried under which is exciting and i like that as the conclusion of the story but there was so much treading water in the middle of the storytelling that the arc kind of lost me it had a really strong promise and has kind of floundered in the middle for me a little bit yeah which is unfortunate but i'm glad that i was very, very guarded in my optimism going into this. Yeah. No, it was a it was a fine way to spend an hour. You know? Yeah. And like I said, artwork absolutely gorgeous, great storytelling through visuals, and taken on its own, I think a really solid issue, as part of an arc less so. Yeah. I did think it was kind of funny that Jericho 
cracks the code or cracks that there is a code or something. And the way he informs the rest of the gang that is to just sign out the phrase, Dick Raven! As soon as he says that, Raven's like, oh, he's trying to tell us that we need to take this signal and Raven needs to bring it to Dick so that he can decode it. So, first of all, to get to that point, that is basically like an episode of Lassie, where, woof, woof, what is it, boy? Trouble at the river? (laughs) We need to go down to the old well and rescue Timmy? Right. Despite the fact that everyone there except for Speedy is pretty fluent in sign language, and so if he had a more complicated phrase, he could have just said it. It was nice to have the visuals of him actually just spelling out the words Dick and Raven, but also, it did open up the possibility that Joey wasn't thinking any of that shit. He just wanted to listen to his favorite band, Dick Raven. Exactly. <laughs> and that was what I was hoping. And I was like, oh, good on you, Joey. And then everybody's like, oh, you need us to do this? And I could just see him just rolling his sea green lemur eyes and being like, oh, just wanted to listen to Dick Raven. Yeah, maybe it was like that movie Being There where... People just keep thinking the guy is a genius because they're interpreting what he says. Mm-hmm. I think you could very well be right about that. Apparently, he did clarify what he was trying to say to Raven at some point because he apparently told her to apologize to Dick for him for accidentally reading Dick's mind and subconsciously absorbing the information that he and Batman had a secret code about a ton of shit. Dick is immediately super forgiving about that in a way that I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be. Wait, so if I just, like, accidentally went into your mind (laughs) and took some secrets out, you'd be mad? We would have to have some words Oh, come on. It's for a good cause. I'm rescuing people. (laughs) Rules are rules, Corey. No reading my mind. They gotta find a different way to describe Joey's power. Every time they're like, when he last entered you, yeah, like it's is that am I just 12 years old and that sounds sexual or I don't know. It's possible, but I mean, I am too because between that and at one point in this comic somebody says, "Now two people are out looking for Dick." I was like, <laughs> "It's more than two, buddy." <laughs> With Joey, the inherently creepy language used to describe his power certainly does nothing to diminish the fact that he has an in- incredibly creepy power. The cabin I was staying at, we were staying with our friend who's a 10-year-old, and she was asking who the different characters were, and I was describing them. And when I described Joey's power, I tried to do it in as neutral way as I could. And she was just like, oh, that's really creepy. It's like, yeah, it absolutely is creepy. Like, I think us being from New England, once you start a power with, you make eye contact with somebody I think we both check out at that point. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but then when it's followed up with, then they turn into a ghost and go into your body and wear it around. No thank you. No thank you indeed. So, it is definitely more than a little bit extra how much into the number two Two-Face is. But then they throw in something in here where for a while he's also apparently super into the number four. <sighs> I get so annoyed at complicated for no reason stuff. And the fact that I don't care if you're the world's greatest detective, there's no fucking way you're going to be like, 
okay, looked on the map, and then the the path of the thing made the Roman numeral four, and then I knew that it was an intersection of fourth and fourth street and fourth avenue, and therefore uh, Apollo was Greek god who was a twin. Right. So therefore, this address. It's so dumb. Every step of that is dumb. Like, you start off with, oh, these five points on a map form the Roman numeral four. Yeah, if you decide to arbitrarily connect them in that way, they do. They could also form, like, a W, a pentagram, a trapezoid, uneven parallel bars. Maybe maybe, uh, Two-Faces started doing gymnastic crimes. Maybe I get mad at it because I'm so bad at directions and it takes me out of the story. Because there, there you have some small part of you, right? When you read hero stuff, you're like, oh, that'd be so cool uh-huh. if I could do that. Yeah. Right? And then I read that and I'm like, more than half of the time, if I don't know where I'm going and I have a 50-50 chance left or right, north mm-hmm. or south, whatever, I will go the wrong way. Yeah. And so having it be like 18 different steps, each of which involves an intuitive leap. Yeah. And then you end up at a precise location. Man, fuck that. Especially if you're going into it and, like, Two-Face wants to be caught. Because it's a trap. Why make your trap that fucking complicated? Yeah, no, it's like, meet meet me at this address at this time. Batman would have fucking shown up. Right. Yeah. And you know that he would just walk into the trap because that's what he trained Dick to do. Exactly, yeah. He's not going to be like, oh, I don't know, that sounds like a trap. Yeah, especially that we are establishing he is in a frame of mind where he is rushing into danger heedlessly. Yeah. So, bad job, Two-Face. Although I did appreciate, in some ways, his commitment to the bit. Not in terms of the complicated schemes, that's too much, but, like, we've often seen Two-Face portrayed wearing the bifurcated jacket, Mm -hmm. and sometimes, like, a necktie that is split down the middle. In this, he goes the extra step where he's wearing the suit that is split down the middle. He has a bow tie that is one color on one side and one color on the other side. But he's also wearing a button-up shirt that is one color on one side and one color on the other side. And I appreciate both that he was doing that and the fact that he was taking advantage of the fact that it is 1989 and you could probably find a shirt that did that. I feel like that's like a cross-colors thing that like mm-hmm. Two-Face would probably be pretty into. Yeah, so you think he was, like, at the mall? Yeah, I, th- I think he probably was. I think that particular fashion era was a real windfall for Two-Face. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, finally, I could get that shirt that's red on one side and yellow on the other. Oh my gosh, henchman, there's sale at Marshall's. Fan <laughs> out. Theo made a shirt like this on the Cosby show. Get me one like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're making me like Two-Face a little bit. <laughs> Just because he's a Malcolm Jamal Warner fan doesn't make him a good person, Corey. That's true, he is evil. There was one little bit in here that did tickle my funny bone. People say that, right? I say that. Okay. And uh, that's the callback to the superhero thing where Commissioner Gordon's talking and he turns around and they're gone and he gets annoyed. Uh Uh-huh. That just has cracked me up since I was a kid. I like that, too. I like that being kind of a running gag in a lot of ways. And I love the fact that Nightwing does it, too. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty fun. I think he overreacted to Tim in the opening page, especially when we saw him not overreact to it before. But overall, I think Nightwing comes across pretty well in this comic. Mm -hmm. His interaction with Batman, where Batman does, like, 
three very Batman moves in this. I mean, all of his moves are Batman moves, and he's very Batman-y. But when Nightwing shows up, and he goes, I need, I mean, I could use your help. I don't need anybody's. Mm -hmm. I loved Nightwing's reaction to that. That he just kind of grinned and is like, yeah, whatever, man. I'm here if you need me. And you can see that, like, sense of satisfaction. It's like, oh, Batman almost said that he needed me. That is, like, the curt nod of appreciation <laughs> that is, like, a warm hug to functional families. Yeah, that little scene, I don't know, spoke to a little bit of maturity, I guess, or, or an interesting, like, depth to their relationship where he starts off by being like hey dad aren't you proud of me i figured it out and dad saying like well whatever yeah i i expected you to but i guess you were more adequate slightly than i had anticipated yeah and then the part that we just described where it kind of flip-flops the other way where he he gets that approval that he's seeking mm -hmm. in that underhanded way and i don't know it felt like it was kind of a, a nuanced uh it gives thing. you a greater appreciation for dick i think and for the way that he was raised in that <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> it gives you a greater appreciation for dick grace and cory uh -huh. and the way that he was raised and his depth of character it doesn't make batman seem like less of a dick especially the batman follows it up with the uh you have to follow my orders now do what i say this is not a democracy you're not with the titans now i have a bad plan and we're going to do it and i'm not going to listen to you argue that pissed me off and i think it was supposed to I think that is like one of the signs we get that Batman is descending a little bit and starting to lose it and maybe getting closer to hitting rock bottom. Um, I don't know. Maybe. I think he's always been a bit of a batocrat. Yeah, I think you're right. And yes, that is a nice word, Corey. Thank you. The other moment that he has that I actually really did like is when he's worried about Dick and he's like, Rob, or Nightwing. I appreciated that he corrected himself. I thought that was pretty nice. I thought that was a nice, like, character-building Bat moment. Mm -hmm. What I wish wasn't happening in this book and in this arc in general is everyone around Batman kind of enabling his narcissism. Like, Tim Drake as the guy with a parasocial relationship with Batman, it makes sense for him to be, like... Batman's doing worse, so everyone around him needs to try to create an environment in which he can thrive regardless of how they feel about things. He's the important thing. You need to do what you can to make him happy because he's being a total out-of-control asshole right now. You need to create a situation that's better for him to do that in, and then maybe he won't act that way. That's a little bit uncomfortable, and the extent to which Alfred is also just like, Yes, young boy, here's what you need to do to make Batman better because Batman's being an irresponsible asshole. So we're not going to try to alter his behavior. We're going to try to alter the behavior of others around him and hope that he improves because of that. Yeah, and it does have that like super unhealthy, creepy dad yeah, vibe it, to it. It really specifically has a bad dad vibe to it. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why they bothered bringing Speedy into this story. It doesn't seem like he's really doing anything. Is that a decision that's going to pay off later down the line in the Titans book? Or what? Because they brought him in, and even in this issue, 
they're like, oh, Speedy will help translate this message. And then he doesn't. And Joey does. I mean, don't get me wrong. I always appreciate people acknowledging that Speedy is fucking useless. But it seems a bit much to bring him into the issue just to illustrate that. Yeah, I don't get it either. I was wondering, maybe, I think we've talked about before how sometimes it seems like, you know, Wolfman sets up these breadcrumbs that are going to lead somewhere, but then they, I don't know, they get blown off the page or he forgets or whatever. Right. Like, I feel like that sort of happened. He's like, oh, I got this cool idea for Speedy. And then a few issues later, it's like, wait, what? Yeah, what was wait, I doing? There aren't cool ideas for Speedy. I don't know. I don't know either. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about in uh, this section? Just just one thing, speaking of Speedy and code breaking. Okay. She's a little bit pregnant. Was that the code? Or was that just him saying something stupid? Uh, yes and yes. Oh, okay. There's no such thing as a little bit pregnant is a phrase that was, I think, more common back then. I've, I've heard it. Yeah. I, just, I just didn't get... It seemed a little bit out of context, right? Because Cyborg comes in, he's like, is there good news? <laughs> he's like well she's a little bit pregnant yeah it doesn't it doesn't really work cyborg says so do we get good news or do we just jump into the furnace and speedy says how does she's a little bit pregnant sound like that is a phrase that means this is a binary situation there are no half measures involved it doesn't apply to that question really no, I think I was so confused. I think maybe Speedy just heard that phrase and is just like, I'm going to use this as many times as I can. It's a good one if the context is right. I mean, it's... It's an okay one. Well, in terms of illustrating, like, a binary situation, right? Is or isn't. Yeah. That was not what was being asked. No, you're right. Speedy did a bad job using that phrase, and it didn't really belong there and didn't help the story at all. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't. Corey, if you're ever wondering whether you're being stupid or Speedy is being stupid, it's Speedy. Yeah, I don't know if I was wondering if I was being stupid. Oh, okay. I didn't mean to put words in your mouth there. I will remind you, though, as whenever I get super down on Speedy, I do remember that one time he shot a tiny parachute onto a monkey with an arrow. That was a delight. That was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I still wish he wouldn't have used that phrase there. Me too. But that monkey was really cute. You ready to move into the minutia? Sure. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's start off with the one that I had the hardest time with, which was a timestamp. Ah, I actually had a fairly easy time with this, so let's hear what you had. Mine was an absolute stretch, and it was that Dick has that little wrist computer that takes tiny, tiny little disks. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, it was a timestamp because they refer to it as this microcomputer, and I think it was one of those late 80s things of, this is how technology is going. It was like uh, like Dick Tracy's little wrist phone. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where technology is going. But it was like unimaginable, right, that that could exist. That would be something that small and that powerful. Right. But if it did, it would look like a graphing calculator that you wore on your glove. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when he typed the buttons, it would go whoop, 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 whoop. That was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that scene a lot. I was wondering, because he says like, okay, I'll stick around, but I'm going to take precautions. What precautions do you think he was taking? Was he contacting the Titans? 
was he erasing the browser search history <laughs> on his wrist computer? It's like, this could go bad pretty easily. Let's clear history. And, all right. Uh, let's see, the number two. Um, yeah, I don't know. Probably both. Okay. So I was actually able to find some pretty era-specific timestamps in this issue, both of which came from Speedy. So maybe that's all he was doing in this issue. Right after he used a phrase that you really didn't like, he said, as for what it meant, heck, I'm still trying to figure out what a Yahoo Sirius is. Oh, Yahoo Sirius. Yeah. Young yeah, Einstein. Einstein. I loved that movie. I have not seen it in a very, very long time. <laughs> Just always think of the scene with the guy soaping his butt up for like a super long time. That's I don't even movie, remember right? that. I think it probably is. Is there a prison shower scene in Young Einstein? I have no idea. I do not remember the movie other than kind of liking it. Bizarrely, I much better remember Yahoo Sirius's other movie, Reckless Kelly. I don't think I saw that. He plays a guy who is from a long line of criminals who were bank robbers and their family line has built up an effective immunity to bullets over the years. <laughs> and then he makes himself like a garbage can suit of armor to help that along in case too many people shoot him. Wow. He drinks a lot of beer too. Mm -hmm. So that's what I remember about that movie. By Young Einstein, I remember virtually nothing. I think there's a jail, like a prison shower scene where they just focus on this guy's buttocks and he's just like rubbing each cheek with a bar of soap for a really long time. Well, good for him. Yeah. That's what I remember about it. Tough but fair. Mm. The other timestamp that I had is a little bit more nebulous. It's something, again, that Speedy says when he is trying to play off the fact that he does not know American Sign Language. He says... Okay, so sue me for flunking hand signs of the rich and famous. Oh, lifestyles, lifestyles of, of the rich and famous. He's making a lifestyles of the rich and famous reference. That I think generally be more mid eighties than late eighties, but mm -hmm. still ballpark timestamp for that. Man, before Instagram, mm -hmm. that was like what we had. Yeah, we had Robin Leach, the guy with apparently a working class British accent was our symbol of what upper-class society was in America. We should do a, uh, a show on the various British accents. I mean, who's better I, than us? I don't really know the differences. Okay, so this would be more of a, like a posh British accent. Jim Jim Cheroo, Corey! Oh, I'm here to sweep your chimney, I am! That's posh? Yeah, that's posh upper-crust British. Why and is then, he sweeping chimneys if he's so posh? Oh, because he's an eccentric millionaire. Oh. And then this would be more of like a Cockney working class accent. Chim chim cheroo, Corey. I'm working class Cockney, I am. Take the apples and pears. They sound similar to me. It's an untrained ear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll get to getting these ears trained up. Yeah. Try spending a fortnight in... Merry old. Eh? 20 days in London? Close enough. Fortnite's two weeks, Corey. Oh, I thought it was 20 days. No, you're thinking of February. <laughs> <laughs> are you as bad at British stuff as you are at calendar stuff? Almost certainly. Okay.
Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you want to highlight? Well, I just found the one, and I think it is probably the reason that Speedy's in this issue. I think it's Cyborg and uh, Starfire having a conversation, mm -hmm. and, and they, they're trying to trace the phone call. They get to a dead end, and he's like, well, maybe Speedy's got something. And Starfire said, not holding my breath. Oh, I thought that was Cyborg saying that. But oh. yeah, I remember that conversation as well. And I had the same one. It's page seven. You're probably right. I think that is Starfire responding. Hey, cheer up. Maybe Harper came up with something. And then, yeah, I think you're right. I think Starfire, or possibly Wonder Girl, because she's there too, says, why aren't I holding my breath? I think that's actually probably Wonder Girl because she is the person who has worked with Speedy the most. That's true, but either way, both of those characters are probably the least acerbic ones. Yeah. And so it's zings even more coming from one of them. Agreed. Here's the zingin' Speedy. Zingin' Speedy and honkin' on Bobo. <laughs> what? The name of an Aerosmith <clears throat> album in the 90s. Honkin' on Bobo? Yup. Oh, Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry. Ah, the toxic twins. What indeed. are you doing? Uh, heroin. Heroin. Oh, is that what honking on Bobo means? No, but it's what they were doing. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. I'm not. Yeah, I, they probably weren't at that point. I think they were sober by that point. I'm, I'm still annoyed with them for not touring with Run DMC after Run DMC basically revived their careers from the garbage pile. Bad choice. Yeah. They're jerks. Too busy honking bobos. Yeah, too busy honking all the bobos. Yeah, leave some bobos for the other hair bands, guys. Yeah, you're going to see hair bands in the future being like, we thought the bobos would last forever. <laughs> forever. Joe Perry honked them all. <laughs> God damn it. Corey, a mm -hmm. lot of competition in this category this week, but who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? Well, I don't like to be uh, repeatable, but for broodingly sitting on a rooftop whilst his cape billowed around him, which is the reason I had Batman last time, mm -hmm. I had Batman for that, but also for the fact that he made everybody wait by not responding to the bat signal. Like, that's a typical mm -hmm. overly dramatic move, right? Just making it, oh, maybe people will worry about me if I don't call in sick for work. Yep, yep. And he made Nightwing go through that ridiculously complicated thing to show up to circuitously ask for his assistance, which was just... Ugh. I agree. I will say he got some very stiff competition from Two-Face in this. For mm -hmm. building a whole upside down house for no goddamn reason. Yeah, but isn't that mitigated by the fact that that's kind of like Two Faces saying is is doing needlessly complicated things about flip flops and yeah. Oh, I bet he loves flip flops. We don't see his feet in this. I don't think. No, but... you know what I like opposites. Villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do bet he loves flip flops because of that reason. That's well, probably easy to get them in different colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just buy two pair. Yeah, and you can just switch them out yeah pretty easy but i mean isn't batman's whole thing being needlessly overly dramatic as well touche 
I had it, I think, a little bit tighter than you did. I did ultimately go with Batman as well, though, just because that phone call pissed me off so much. It's the only reason that the Titans have to be in the book at all is because Batman decided that to leave a message for someone who is staying at his goddamn house, he is instead going to call their friend's house, but first he's going to climb a telephone pole in a rural place outside of the city, splice into the telephone wires manually, then leave an encoded message, and then rush off so that nobody can trace it back to him. Except for that the message can be traced back to him, and the Teen Titans have his fucking phone number. They called him last issue. They know who he is. And two other things. The hubris of him to be like, and I know you're going to try and tap this, but I invented tapping phones. He didn't invent tapping phones. And that his encoded message was... She's a little bit pregnant. <laughs> that wasn't his encoded message. I don't message. like that one bit. <laughs> that wasn't his encoded There's message. no need for was, that. Here's a number of things that incorporate the number two in some way. So meet me at a house that has... Mostly pooping. A bunch of... <laughs> exactly. I was positing. I know you haven't listened to the shows that you weren't on. But uh, I, I did mention that... I wonder if part of his obsession with the number two extends to him having plans that are always steaming piles of shit. <laughs> because they fucking are. But, yeah. Uh, yep. Sorry, Bats. He yeah, went bad, again. Bad job, Two-Face. Bad job, Batman. But good job for both of them at being incredibly overly dramatic. Top drawer. Oh, that was a very good British accent. That was uh, Cockney. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, it was, because um, top drawer is Cockney rhyming slang mm. for uh, cola. Because top of the pops would be a phrase, very common phrase, but instead you say drawer, and then so it's the thing that would also follow that first word, something that rhymes with it. Um, and then... This you, is uh, something Two-Face came carry up with? carry the three. <laughs> yeah, I think Two-Face <laughs> may have invented Cockney rhyming slang. That's very so, complicated. So, like, apples and pears would be stairs. What? So, yeah, that's how Cockney rhyming slang works. So you would Just call the stairs... Pears rhymes with stairs. Yes, so you would call the stairs the apples. I don't get it. <laughs> so just, who did what yeah i think maybe two-faced <laughs> so if instead they had said i don't know zebra sorry zebras and bears then zebras would be stairs yeah instead yeah. of apples and pears yes zebras and bears yeah because people always say zebras and bears together got it mm-hmm i learned that they say it that way from uh, my statistics teacher in college Zebra is one of the better words that British people pronounce. He called um, crosswalks uh, zebra crossings. Oh, yeah, that makes sense because of the stripes, probably. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, okay, which is a better British animal pronunciation? Ooh, that's, that's okay. going to be tough. Zebra, mm. sloth. Do they really say that, or did we just make up that they say that? I think they say that. If you make up a thing that British <laughs> people say, it's true. 
They say all kinds of things. Oh, Jesus. Um, zebra, I guess. Uh, I'm going sloth. All right. Yeah. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? I had two. I really liked Alfred's dishwashing outfit, which is his normal outfit, just without the jacket and the sleeves rolled up. Mm-hmm. But I realized he looks very Portland hipster. Like, he's wearing skinny jeans. Yeah, he's wearing skinny jeans, vest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's missing some sleeve garters, but mm-hmm. I would trust him to make me a bespoke cocktail. Yeah, good look, actually. Yeah, I agree. I think that is an excellent look. I think maybe my favorite look in the book was something that Speedy was wearing because he has flash danced the shit out of his t-shirt. He has cut the collar off of it so that it has more of a scooped neck, mm-hmm. much like we did when we were in our siblings dance competition oh, when yeah. we were a dance team. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I appreciated Speedy flash dancing up his outfit. Lisa and I recently watched the movie Fame, which was pretty fun. But when we got to the very end of the movie, Lisa was like, so wait, when is the lady going to cut off the collar of her T-shirt? I was like, Lisa, that's flash dance. And she's like, I was waiting for that the whole movie. (laughs) You can see why, though. Oh, totally. There's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. Man, my mom was the biggest Leroy booster. On fame? Yeah, she just loved his dancing. He was a very impressive dancer. Mm -hmm. I liked Coco. Mm. And, okay, here's a Flashdance connection. Coco, from the movie Fame, sang the theme song to Flashdance. It's Irene Cara. No shit. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's understandable then Lisa's confusion. Indeed. Speedy had another costume choice that I don't know if we've specifically called it out before, but in his Speedy outfit, he has a little arrow-shaped lapel pin, which, it's just such an odd little touch to his outfit. I I mean, the fact that it is such a scoop-cut neck on his outfit, and he is wearing that little arrow-shaped pin... My eyes are up here. (laughs) Well, it could be in my eyes are up here. I was seeing it more the opposite direction. I feel like that looks like it, the kind of thing that would, like, signal other people that you're a swinger. Like, that kind of, like, secret, like, oh, if you know the code, this means I'm into this kind of stuff. Oh, like the handkerchief things we were talking about? Yeah, yeah, like, I'm at a fancy party. Oh, this lapel pin means, means that I'm down to clown. So, I think that might be Speedy's deal. I don't know. It's... A very specific fashion choice he has made, regardless. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, now you know a little something more about Speedy. Mm-hmm. I also know not to wear my arrow-shaped lapel pins to any fancy parties. Unless? I don't know what kind of clowning that means. Oh, that's true. Different circus skills are prevalent in different cities. Yeah. Yeah. They'd probably want you to do some fire dancing. No, not doing it. No, not Clum- even not clumsy, even, and I don't like burning. Not even some low impact fire prancing, as was very popular in Portland for a time. <laughs> Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had two choices. One was pretty subtle. It was on page five, and it's it's kind of like a ambiguous expression on Cyborg's face 
after Sarah basically says, like, you're a role model for these kids, and he kind of smiles and looks like a, a satisfied smile, but it also is a little bit hard to tell if it's like a, like, what exactly he's thinking. It was just, it was really interesting. It made me think about what's going on in Cyborg's mind. Yeah, I think that's a good call. The smile to me looks like he's like, I'm going to try to pretend this doesn't make me happy. It, it's like a smile that he is trying to suppress. He's like, I'm a role model. I'm not a role model, you guys. Yeah, that was how I how I read it initially, too. And I thought it was nice. It was a nice emotion that it captured. I think it was. We talked about George Perez passing this last week, and that did lead me to like this deep dive into rereading a bunch of George Perez comics. And I actually read the first work he did for Marvel is back in 1974. And it's this two-page backup story in a issue of, I think, Astonishing Tales. It's the first appearance of Deathlock. And it is a two-page story that features the writer and artist getting together and spitballing ideas and then throwing them in the trash and coming up with the idea of Deathlock and then discarding it and saying, nah, it'll never work. And then Deathlock crawling out of the trash can and he has a very sour expression on his face. The style is so totally different than the George Perez style that we've come to know. It's a much looser and much more cartoonish look, but his ability to capture characters' emotions with their facial expressions is so on-brand. It was almost a little bit jarring, and also made me realize I think that is an underappreciated aspect of his artwork is how good he is at showing characters' emotions. And that is totally on show with that panel. Yeah, it is. I was reading a fair amount of stuff about him, too. But, you know, there's been so much written. And uh, one thing that really surprised me was is something that, that Wolfman, Marv Wolfman, said about him, which is that, like, when they first started collaborating, he was like, eh, his art's not that great. Which was bonkers to me, right? Because yeah. he's like one of my all-time favorites. But but he Wolfman followed up by saying, "But the ability to produce that art can be learned, but storytelling can't." And he's a natural for that, so he's oh. he's got that. And I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a nice like kind of underhanded compliment, but also just confusing because everything I've seen him do, is yeah, even amazing. from that era, is really really solid." Yeah. I had a lot of panels to choose from here. I had difficulty narrowing it down. Well, I hate the way that Batman necessitated this scene. The scene of Cyborg looking for clues at the site of the telephone pole that Batman had climbed is so good. Like, the background with the telephone poles and the brushes and the rural route that it's on is just really nicely done. The shading on Cyborg is really nice. The use of negative space to show that it is a rural area is great. And the panel placement, it is a large image of that. And then all of the other panels on the page are inset into some of the negative space of that panel. It's just really great. Yeah, yeah, that one stood out to me too. The perspective and everything is just makes you feel like you're there, kind of. Yeah. I also really liked on page 23, there are two panels that are a close-up of Two-Face's face, but it is split into two different panels, and I really appreciated that choice. 
like the individual panel showing the Harvey Dent side and the Two-Face side mm -hmm. or the non-marred side of Harvey's face and the marred side of his face are both really nicely drawn. But the inserting of a panel gutter between them really drives home the bifurcated nature of Two-Face and how split those two halves of his persona are. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Yeah, I like that one too. I think my runner-up is on page 15. I call it Bat Perspective. Similar to the telephone pole one that you called out. I like it because it's like you're sort of looking over this shadow image of Batman, the silhouette of Batman. Mm -hmm. And you can see what it would be like to be perched up on this building, looking down at your, you know, kind of target area. And for me, it came with the feeling of, I do not like heights. And I would not want to do that because it does give this feeling of like you're perched up high looking down on something that you're going to have to go swoop down on and attack. And earlier on that page, you do just see a really nice silhouette of Batman standing on a rooftop with the night sky behind him and a vague silhouette of the cityscape there. And that's really nicely done. I loved there's this little moment on page 18 where it's just Batman's reaction to walking into the room and seeing that everything is upside down. Both the depiction of everything being upside down in the room down to the detail of the pictures on the wall being upside down. And you can see what the framed pictures on the wall are. That's really well done. But Batman's reaction to it where he just looks like, what the fuck? And there's just an exclamation point over his head. Mm hmm. I love that. And I love the little exclamation point there. Mm -hmm. Just really incredibly solid work throughout. Indeed. Corey, let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this comic? I got two. Okay. I actually have four. So why don't I go first and we'll bookend yours. Okay. I, at first I was having trouble finding any. And then once they started coming to me, they came pretty fast and pretty furious. My first was Time Witch. Oh. I just think Time Witch sounds pretty cool. It was, I think Cyborg saying, it's about time. Witch, do this or something when he's talking to Raven. Oh. But Time Witch, I think, would be a pretty cool band name, and I think a pretty cool band. I see them as being kind of like 70s retro, like, proto-metal. Yeah, they used to open for Wolf Mother. Yeah, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, before Wolf Mother blew up and left Sold it behind. out. <laughs> yeah. But Time Witch, that, that's my first one. Pretty good. What do you got? These guys are a bummer. Okay. But, you know, a lot of people like that. People like bummers. They're a duo. Okay. Uh, loneliness and desire. I was honestly wondering. I didn't have that as one of my choices, but I almost did. And I was like, Corey likes the duos like that. Mm -hmm. I, I bet that'll show up later. Oh. Save call. me some time and give us more options. All right. What kind of sad music would you say they would be? Probably guitar and singing, but um, maybe with some electronic stuff in the background. For the beats and uh just drenched in reverb yeah i think that sounds about right mm -hmm. i had harvey's obsession <laughs> i think that could be a pretty good band 
I think it probably is maybe a little more likely to be an improv group. I think the possessive apostrophe with random noun is the sort of thing you get with a lot of improv troops. So maybe more in that vein. But uh, I can also see that being a band. It makes me think of two things. One, Harvey's Comedy Club. Uh-huh. And two, what's that band? Harvey Danger. Sure, I was thinking more PJ Harvey, but uh, Harvey's a name that crops up in a lot of uh, popular music. Mm. So, you know, something to think about. I also had a band that got their name from an upside-down crate in Two-Face's Cuckoo House. Mm. And they're called No Hooks. They are a hardcore free jazz band. None of their songs are meant to be catchy or melodic. They are very militant about their stance that... uh, No one will sample this ever. Exactly. No hooks in any of this music. I don't like them. I don't either, but they did build themselves for a while as the antithesis of Blues Traveler, and I do appreciate that. (laughs) The hook won't bring anybody back Uh, again. Nope. What was your other band? Uh, the other band, speaking of Blues Traveler, is uh-huh. called Angle of the Groove. Ooh, Angle of the Groove is pretty good. Mm-hmm. What kind of music did that... I, see, I'm just thinking of D-Light right now. Groove is in the heart. Ah, uh, no, this is more like a more old school funk, like a Eddie Bow. Okay. Kind of Mandrill inspired, perhaps? Oh, maybe, maybe some uh, Afro-Latino? Yeah, 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 we could do that. Funk in there, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. My final, I think, is maybe my favorite band name, and it's the How Are Yous. <laughs> Dick, I believe, says, that's it? No, How Are Yous? And uh, the How Are Yous, and it's a hyphen between each word. I think they're Japanese retro pop. Like the what, what? five, six, seven, eights? Yeah, something like that. Hmm. But they're, they're the How Are Yous. Uh. I don't know. I think that's a fun name. I, th- I think that uh, definitely very... 60s inspired but modern band doing pretty straight ahead like poppy tunes Hmm. like retro pop Mm -hmm. so i don't know we got six options i just i wish i had seen them open for wolf mother i want to go with time witch okay time witch it is now Corey, every issue of a new titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Titans, until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? Mm. Um, let's start with uh, Beast Boy, because I like the way that you pronounced that kind of weird. Thank you. Uh-huh. Beast Boy. Yes. I'm giving him an honorary titan role because he's in the book mm-hmm. this through this arc and it's batman yeah he made dick jump through a lot of hoops batman is a fucking schmuck in this issue i do not care for him i also had him as my beast boy his inability to compromise or collaborate and his viewing that as a virtue i think is fully on display in this he's doing things in an unnecessarily complicated way. That whole telephone pole scaling phone call to leave a message for somebody who's staying at your house 
but leaving the message with people who already have your fucking phone number and know your secret identity. There's no reason for any of that. That drove me fucking crazy. He made George Perez work so hard for so little return. I know. It did make for some cool images, but... It did. At what price? Exactly. Mm. I mean... Whatever George Perez drew, he was going to make some great images. So right. why not make him draw something that's plot relevant? Exactly. Yeah, Batman is definitely the Beast Boy. Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad? Well, for fighting the good fight, for climbing that telephone pole, <laughs> I gave it to Borgie. All right. I think Cyborg did a pretty good job in this issue. I went with Joey for doing the actual translation of the message. And more importantly for trying to get the rest of the Titans to finally listen to his Dick Raven album. (laughs) I had Jericho. Okay. Well, Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1990, and the month of our Lord, November, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot. So, yeah, Aqualad's up to enjoying uh, the musical uh, Shogun. Oh, they made a musical out of Shogun? The James Clavell novel? One can only hope. Okay. And uh, that was at the Marquee Theater in, in New York City. He went to the opening night on the 29th and stayed for many, many other of the showings. He loved the, the show so much. And the reason he was there was because that was the wager that he had won in a bet with Beaky. Oh. So they had a bet to see who was going to be the best rap artist at the Billboard Music Awards. It was the first Billboard Music Awards on the 26th of the month. Mm -hmm. And Aqualad just couldn't get uh, You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer out of his head. And he he was like, that's going to win. Very catchy song. Hands down. Beaky hadn't really followed hip-hop as much, and he was pretty sure that Fab Five Freddy's 1982 hit, Change the Beat, was going to be the winning song. Of the 1990 Grammys? Yeah. Hmm. Of the, the Billboard Music Awards. Fucking Pelicans, am I right? Right. I mean, I mean, it's like, he has a point. It's one of the most sampled songs, apparently, like, ever. Yeah, no, but, great song. And I think he didn't know that Hammer and, and Fab Five Freddy were actually pretty good friends. So it was an easy win for Aqualad, and the wager was you, you got to buy season tickets to the Shogun musical. They have season tickets to musicals. It's the 80s were estranged. They were indeed. <laughs> wow. Well, that may be one thing that Aqualad and Beaky were up to, but it wasn't the only thing that they were up to in November of 1990. And in fact, it wasn't the only music award thing that they were up to in November of 1990. See, In addition to loving the song, you can't touch this, Aqualad also loved the song Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli. Because it invoked rain. (laughs) And, you know, he likes it when it's raining outside, means he doesn't have to jump back in the ocean for another hour. And so he listened to that song rather a lot. And when he was watching the Grammys and he saw that they won, he was very excited for them. But later on, when they took the Grammy Award away from Millie Vanilli for their album, Girl, You Know It's True, because it turned out they weren't singing on it, he was upset. Mm. Not that it had been taken away from Rob and Fab, the frontmen for Millie Vanilli, but because 
it piqued his sense of injustice. And it did for me at the time, too. Aqualad and I are in agreement that if the song is worthy of winning the Grammy, and this song won, then when they took the Grammy away from the people who didn't sing the song, they should give it to the people who did sing it. Mm -hmm. It's the same song. Mm -hmm. If that song wins the Grammy and that is what you are awarding the prize for, then why don't Brad Howell and John Davis, the people who actually sang the song, have that Grammy? And so Aqualad, he tracked them down. He tracked down Brad Howell and John Davis, and he gave them commemorative statues of Larry Johnson in his grandmama role in Nike commercials because he was a little bit confused about what a Grammy was. <laughs> now, oh. were those commercials out in 1990? <laughs> Nobody knows for sure. Yeah, this, Was Larry Johnson not drafted yet at that point? It's a mystery. Mm. But Aqualad was able to get to the bottom of that mystery, and it turned out that he, he was in the DC universe. Well, good. Yeah, and that's what Aqualad was probably up to in November of 1990. Good times. Indeed. Speaking of good times, I had one with you chatting about this comic book, Corey. Oh, likewise. Thank you. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at ttwasteland at gmail.com or at our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up on the internet sometimes. I'll post a thing on there every now and again, and you can find it there. But if you can't, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been, and we always will be. Watching and waiting. Mm. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I'm uh, waiting for my sourdough to rise. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. You got a new starter or same old starter? Uh, same old. That's pretty good. Yeah. So just waiting for the sourdough to rise all week. That's going to be a big sourdough. Oh, yeah, the biggest. Are you concerned that it will take over their heart and uh, will, will fill the chamber? No, I am not. I would never do that to our listeners' hearts. I appreciate that. They're so big-hearted, how could it? Exactly. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. Me? I'm going to be watching Blade 2 in people's hearts. Because I watched the first Blade movie uh -huh. while I was at that cabin. They had a VHS tape of it. Pretty good. I will, uh, I'll join you, because I'm just waiting, you know? Yeah, you got, you got nothing to do. You could do a heck of a lot worse than watch a Guillermo del Toro direct uh, Blade movie. Oh, he directed Blade 2? Yeah. No shit. Yeah. Huh. It was pretty fun. Well, I don't know why they brought Chris Christopherson back from the dead in it. The reasoning behind that didn't make a ton of sense, but uh, it was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. You get to go to some raves that are filled with blood. That's a nice time. Oh, no. Ooh, they're vampires. The vampires like to have raves. Oh. It fits their aesthetic. Yeah, that checks yeah. out. But yeah, Blade 1 held up surprisingly well, I gotta say. Huh. Some of the visual effects eh, maybe seem a little bit dated, but overall, pretty good. If you would like to support the show financially, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that is there exclusively for our donors. There is the 
Howard the Duck podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's up there. There are also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that I've put up there, and there's just a ton of other stuff there as well. So if you donate, you get to uh, take a gander at all that stuff. And uh, I would also just mean a lot to me because it makes it possible for us to keep doing the show. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, how would you suggest they go about that? They should uh, talk about a review to people. They should talk about a review to people. Yeah. So normally these what are... What review would you suggest they talk about when they talk about it to people? I suggest they would talk about a review for this, this show. Okay. So, for example... Hey, Hub. Hey, Corey. How's it going? Pretty good. Just watched Blade. Oh, man, that sounds good. You know, Yeah, it held up good? pretty well. Did it? Some of the effects were a little bit dated, but overall, not bad. Speaking of things that are nice, <laughs> I just left a review for this podcast that brought me so much joy. Well, that sounds like a nice thing to do. What'd you say in the review? Oh, I said, this podcast brings me so much joy, like a young Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Five stars. That's the most stars a review can have. I know. That show sounds pretty good. Yeah, you should check it out. I think I will. And scene. Yeah. Corey, those improv classes are really paying off. I know. Let's go take a tight five. Okay. That's a break. Is it? Isn't it? I think a tight five would be five minutes of stand-up comedy. <laughs> oh, shit. That you have really practiced and honed and gotten it to be a very tight five. All right, well, that's Let's gonna take a, take a minute. Fast, sloppy five. <laughs> That'll be a break. Oh. A loose, sloppy five. Okay. That doesn't sound very nope. good. Nope. No. So, yeah, uh, listeners could do that. Take a loose, sloppy five? <laughs> to uh, leave a review or talk to somebody about the show. Or talk to them about a review that you had left that doesn't mention a loose, sloppy five. I think that would just be like. It seems like that would just be a huge amount of diarrhea. <laughs> Loose sloppy five. Like, when, you know how when somebody has, like, a big forehead, they would say self-deprecatingly, oh, I got it, a five head. Well, uh, instead of taking a number two, it's such a big load of diarrhea that it would be a five. Ah. <sighs> I, anyway, thanks I, so much for supporting the show. That's a that's a great review that you guys left. And uh, thank you for it. And thanks for not mentioning that loose sloppy five explanation <laughs> that I came up with. It sounds unpleasant. <sighs> I hope none of you guys are having to take loose sloppy five. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. <laughs> How uh, does your brain work? I way? don't know. It clearly doesn't, Corey. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. And they knew it. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, bees, friend or foe? We've been over this before, Hub. Friend. Okay, good.
Didn't we talk about that last time? Yeah, we probably did. Okay. I'll try again. <laughs> <laughs> I have not changed my stance on bees. Good, good.